What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from ndhackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here is always so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own successful companies. Today, I'm talking to Ben Orenstein. Ben is the co-host of The Art of Product, a podcast about the intersection of code and business. Ben is also the CEO of a new company called Tuple, which he and his co-founders have been bootstrapping for just over a year now. They are in the very early stages, but they're on the path toward profitability, and it looks like they're going to get there. So things seem to be going really well so far. Ben, welcome to the show. I'm excited to talk to you about this journey you're on and how you guys are navigating the treacherous waters of being an early stage startup. Thanks, man. I, uh, I'm super excited, too. I've been listening to the podcast for a long time, so I'm super psyched to be a guest on it. Well, I like having founders like you on the podcast, Ben, because you're actually in the thick of things. You're not remembering what happened five or six years ago. You are working on it right now. A year from now, Tuple could be a wild success. A year from now, Tuple could be dead and you've moved on to something else. We don't know. You're in the middle of it. Yeah. It's real-life drama. It's reality television happening now. That's exactly it. And I can tell you, I've been surveying different segments of the Andy Actors audience a lot recently. And the vast majority of people listening to this right now are way earlier than you. They have not started their businesses yet. They are perhaps tinkering on side projects. They haven't launched yet. They aren't charging anyone. So I'm excited to dive into your recent experiences, Ben, because the things you've been grappling with for the last year are the things that everybody else is going to be dealing with very soon. So perhaps the best place to start here is to point out the fact that you were a software engineer at ThoughtBot. You got to do a lot of public speaking, a lot of coding. It was a very cushy job with a lot of autonomy and I'm sure a great salary. Why would you ever give that up to start a business? I guess because it sounded fun. I am very much addicted to trying new things that I'm not good at yet. I I like to say that my favorite thing is the steep part of the learning curve. And so I tend to stay involved in like a hobby or something as long as I'm making rapid progress and getting better quickly. And then once I've like kind of like gotten my feet underneath me and I can kind of see like, okay, now it's just a a bit of a slog to get to like actually great at this. I usually lose interest. Hopefully that won't happen here. I'm hoping that like starting a company is like dynamic enough that there's enough new things I can jump into that uh, it it doesn't become boring. Uh, My hunch is that's that's the case. Yeah, I was actually planning to ask you what would have to happen for you to regret this decision of becoming a founder. And I think your intuition, your hunch is spot on. It's probably not going to get boring. It's never going to be easy, that's for sure. I don't think I could regret this. So I'm a year into it now. And honestly, this last year has been more interesting than several of the previous years combined, I would say. And I'm very lucky. Like I had a great job and it was an interesting job. And my like happiness level and baseline back then was very high. It was great. But this is even more fun and even more interesting. So if all the numbers turn south tomorrow and we like just went down to zero, I wouldn't look back on this and be like, oh, I shouldn't have given that a shot. I would, uh, it'd be okay. That's cool. You're already happy before. Now you've broken through and reached an even higher high. And you're not even that worried about failing. And I think if you could take that that zoomed out perspective and say, you know what, no matter what happens, it's all going to be fine, then it really makes it easier just to appreciate running your startup in the moment. Yeah. And and it was interesting. When I first started doing this, I would tell people what I was doing and they would say, wow, that's really brave of you to take a big risk. And honestly, I didn't feel that way at the time. Like I didn't feel like I was taking a big risk. It's like I have development skills 
And so I have a pretty reliable thing to fall back on. It was a risk in the sense that I was like eating up my savings and I couldn't deploy that for something else. But it didn't feel like the end result of this would be, oh, maybe I can't pay rent or I'm like some horrible thing is going to happen to me. I won't be able to go to the doctor or something. It was more like, to me, the bigger risk was like regretting not doing it. So what was it like making that decision to quit your job? Was it a spur of the moment thing or was it something you've been turning over in the back of your mind for years? How did that go? It was a little bit of both in a way. So it had been on my mind for a long time. I had been feeling for a while, maybe like five or six years, like my eventual destiny was to start my own company. It just seemed like the ultimate expression of challenge and interest and like applying my skills to a thing that I was fascinated by. And so it it seemed like I was going to do this eventually. And, And so in some sense, it did not sneak up on me. When I did eventually leave my last job, that did happen kind of quickly in that I just over a couple months, I just got the itch. I just got dissatisfied. And I was like, you know what? I think now's the time. Like I've been saving money for a long time and I don't actually know what I'm going to go do. I didn't have the idea, but I just knew that I didn't want to spend any more time not trying something. And so it was really over just a handful of weeks where I decided to pull the trigger. The saving money part of it is so important because it just takes a lot of the stress off. It gives you peace of mind. I did the exact same thing. I've been contracting for a couple of years. I had a year, a year and a half of runway saved up and just made it a lot easier to quit. And then like you said, having developer skills to fall back on is a pretty good form of insurance as well. 100%. I, I think if if your audience, so your audience is, is possibly aspiring to do this someday. And one of the key things I would encourage them to be doing now is actually just saving money. Just do, get your expenses as low as you can and, and start putting away some cash. I have two co-founders and the three of us all uh, at the beginning of this said we can go at least a year with the savings we have. And that was so useful for us. And, and now, because we have, we're basically at ramen profitability now. Oh, and, congrats. You're uh, already there. And, yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's, I think basically this month it's, it's going to be, that's, that's true if, we, uh, if the numbers keep going where I think they will. And we have all of our equity. So we split it, the company evenly and we didn't have to give any of it away. And it's just like, wow, if we hadn't had that savings, we could be in a very different position right now. That's one of the best parts about bootstrapping and being an indie hacker is you have 100% control of your business. You can do whatever you want. You don't report to anybody and you don't have to bag any gatekeeper investors for permission to follow your dream. And I think having savings is really what makes that possible for a lot of people. Totally. And there was sort of an interesting, there was a, a point that made this very clear to me, which is originally I was going to have one co-founder and the third co-founder sort of appeared last minute right before we were getting started. And one of the key questions that we had for him was like, what's your savings situation? Like, can you go a while without getting paid and without raising funding? And because he said yes, it was easy to add him to the team. And if he had said no, I don't know if he would be with us on this journey, honestly. Let's talk about this process of vetting a co-founder because this comes up in the Indie Hackers community all the time. Hey, I found somebody that I might want to work with, but how can I be sure that they're the right person? How do I vet them? What kind of questions should I even be asking? Mm. And it's kind of a crapshoot because people are complex. You're not sure how they're going to change over time. It's hard to know what to ask. How did you decide to pick your particular co-founders, Ben? And how certain were you that they would work out? Well, so one I did the right way and then one I took a bit of a leap on. So I have two co-founders, Joel and Spencer. Joel and I have known each other for years now, probably six years. And we actually met through singing. We both uh, sing, uh, sang in a barbershop chorus, which is like an acapella men's singing organization. And 
Uh, we were friends for a long time and he previously started a startup uh, and then sold it to another company and was kind of getting bored himself. And so originally he and I, I would go to his house and sort of pitch him on various business ideas. And then one day I pitched him on the thing that became Tuple and he said, yes. So that, that was kind of like the, the traditional or like the, I guess the recommended approach, which is start a company with someone you know really well. Yeah. So, so I had no stress around that. I, I knew Joel and I liked each other and I, I was confident we could uh, work through any problems we had. Spencer joined the company. Well, he, before, he joined before we were a company. But basically, as Joel and I are ready to quit our jobs, Spencer quits his job and reaches out to Joel and said, hey, like, I just quit my job. I'm trying to figure out what to do with my life. Like, What are you up to right now? Now, Spencer had worked for Joel at Joel's previous startup. So Joel had a relationship with Spencer already. And, he's, and, and so Joel comes to me and says, hey, look, Spencer's free. He was great. I think we should seriously consider adding him to the team. We met with Spencer and we talked about kind of like our philosophy, I guess, which is like, what kind of company do you want to build? Like, do you want to raise money and try to make this thing huge? Do you want to build something smaller and a little more sane pace? Uh, and like, just made sure that we agreed at like a lifestyle level of what we were looking for. But at the end of the day, I was more or less just trusting Joel's judgment and hoping it all worked out and got lucky because shockingly, in a year of working together, I feel like we've had almost no conflict. It's been like kind of ridiculously um, idyllic in a way. This is like the role that luck plays is so fascinating to think about because this could have easily gone the other way. Like if you guys were at each other's throats, fighting every day, disagreeing about the direction of the company and you guys split up months ago, it wouldn't be that surprising of a story. To my mind, luck is really just anything that's out of your control. Anything that you place in somebody else's hands, anything that you didn't really think about, just sort of happened, uh, anything you can't control. And how much can you really control another person, even if you vet them? Like, how much control do you really have? Yeah. Talking to my mom about this, she says she's a therapist. And she says there's a degree to which um, successful marriages are the result of luck. Because if you get married at 25, you, you basically can't tell what that person's going to be like over the long term. And so if you're lucky, you pick someone that, who like, grows in a way that's compatible with the way that you grow, but you can just as easily not. I mean, they don't even know how they're going to turn out another 10 or 20 years. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. You can't promise that you're not going to do that. No, nah, you can't. So let's, let's go out to these early stages of you starting Tuple. You said that you would go over to Joel's house and you would pitch him on this list of startup ideas you had. What were some of the ideas that you had on this list and how did those conversations go? So I actually have my um, list of business ideas, which I just have as like a note on my phone. Do you want me to just read you some of these? Yeah, let's hear them. All right. Uh, quality analysis for Rails apps. This is kind of like code climate. Okay. SaaS in a box Rails kit. So a, a tool for spinning up like a SaaS really quickly, like a Rails app that's pre-configured. Um, <laughs> some of these are very generic. Like paid Ruby gem for something. For something. Just, for something. Just charge for code for something. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a mix. And then some of these are more like consulting-y, like uh, webinars as a productized consulting service. The short answer to this is like none of these really caught us, honestly. That some of these are okay. I, I sort of like thinking of business ideas just as like a little hobby. Mm. Uh, but it doesn't mean that any of them are that good. Did you have any formal process for deciding whether or not an idea was good or was it just intuition? You know, I don't like the sound of this. I don't want to spend my life doing this. I wouldn't say it was a formalized process. It was mostly intuition and then also just like shape of the business, which is I wanted to sell software. I didn't really want to do consulting. I really, really wanted it to be something I could sell to my existing audience. I think that was that was like very important and we can talk about why. Uh, but I think that's a huge component of our success so far. Those are sort of the, the, the big pieces. Yeah, let's talk about this because this is a, a very common topic of conversation. Should you build an audience 
before you start your business? Should you have a bunch of subscribers to your mailing list? Should you have a following on your blog or on Twitter? And even if you do somehow have an audience, how are you going to successfully sell what you're building to that audience? Hmm. I talked to Mike Tabor, one of the founders of MicroConf on the podcast last year, and he had a pretty big audience from MicroConf, from his blog about business tactics and strategies. And then he built and launched a product that was completely outside the realm of his audience. It was like email follow-up software for salespeople or consultants or something. And none of his audience wanted to buy it. So I think it's 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 great that you decided to have that constraint, that you're only going to work on something that your current audience would care about. Mm. So earlier I said, I gave one piece of advice, which is like, if you want to do this someday, start saving money. That's, a, that's part of it. I would say as important, maybe more important, actually, given the increase in funding options these days, is start building up an audience. That's kind of like the cynical take on it, like build an audience. I feel like a better way to think about this is be useful on the internet, which is a phrase I stole from my buddy Adam Wathen, who does this better than almost anyone. It's just, how can you be useful? How can you be helpful? How can you put out good things in the world? It's less about like how many email subscribers do you have or how many Twitter followers and more like how many people have seen you do good things and gotten value from it. Like in the early days of Tuple, we had people say, I will pay you several hundred dollars just to support what you're doing because I've gotten so much value from you over the years. Like I don't even need what you're selling. I just want to support what you're doing here. And like that's that's pretty useful, turns out. Be helpful on the internet. How do you do that? How did you do that specifically? Yeah. So I, I worked at ThoughtBot for many years and ThoughtBot, I, I sort of, a core part of ThoughtBot's culture rubbed off on me, which is that I would say that sort of be useful thing is, is embedded deeply there. So we would be at standup and someone would say, oh, yesterday I learned that Postgres something, something. And someone would go, oh, that should be a blog post. And there was just like this strong undercurrent of uh, recommendations to share stuff. So lots of blog posts, lots of conference talks, um, recording videos, just being being helpful and giving back to the community. And so for me, that took the shape of uh, conference talks. I decided I loved speaking. I tried it a couple times. I really enjoyed it. So I gave a lot of talks uh, all over the world, which was <laughs> amazing because first of all, I got to travel a bunch uh, with ThoughtBot paying for it. Uh, I got to grow my own reputation and I got to build uh, a group of people who would seen me do useful things. And there are talks I gave back in like 2012 that people still email me about today. I'm like, hey, I just watched that talk you gave about this thing. And it's like these, these the dividends are still paying to me. It's, it's, it's amazing. This reminds me of the marshmallow test. It's where they give kids a marshmallow and they say, hey, you can eat this marshmallow now or you can wait 20 minutes and we'll come back and give you a second marshmallow. And half the kids eat the marshmallow and the other half wait and you know, supposedly the, the kids who wait and get two marshmallows have better career trajectories and make more money over time, et cetera. And it sounds like what you're saying is the same, but for business. Uh, if you can be far-sighted enough to do things that help others in the short term, that provide value, then it'll pay dividends for your business and the long term. Exactly. And the, the, the great thing is, to me, I was eating the marshmallows the whole time. Like Giving a talk is really fun. I, for me personally, I enjoy it. And recording my podcast is really fun. It's not, it's not hard work for me. I don't, it, it's not a sacrifice. And so to me, I feel like I'm eating the marshmallow and getting two later. Uh, and life is, is just great. And so I would, I would encourage people to try to find something like that. Like for me, writing a blog post every week would be a chore. 
that does not sound fun for me. That would be a, a thing I would have to make myself do. And I'd be like, okay, you're doing this thing because you know it's going to be good in the long term. Recording a podcast does not feel like that for me. So maybe maybe that's the opposite for you. Maybe it's something entirely different. Maybe you want to make a vlog. I, I'm not sure. But like, if you can find a thing that doesn't feel like that much work, that's going to be like the sustainability matters so much more than like perfection, right? It's all about how long can you adhere to this. It's the number one reason businesses fail. People quit. It's because they're doing something they don't like and it's not worth it anymore. Or maybe it's because they ran out of money. So if you can sort of prevent yourself from quitting, you can make it hard to quit. If you save up enough money, if you do things that you like, you're much more likely to stick with it. And if you stick with it, you're more likely to succeed. 100%. And so these two things that I was doing, like saving money and and being useful and building an audience, I didn't really know what they were for. Like they, they had some immediate benefits, but mostly I was just kind of like, I'm just doing this. And like, I don't know why I'm putting this cash in this account. Like, I don't know what I'm going to want to spend this on someday. Or like, I don't know, like exactly why I want a bunch of Twitter followers, like, or like why this will be useful. But it, it's just like turned out like, oh, hey, I'm making a company that sells to developers. This is uh, going to be really great. I have all these people on an email list and I have Twitter followers and things like that. And it, it was great to have been like f- past me, uh, did, did current me a, a real solid by, by working on this over the years. So one of the things that stands out to me about your story is that you had all the skills to really get this thing started by yourself. You were a software engineer. You built up an audience. You had marketing chops. You're not afraid of public speaking. And yeah, you decided to work with your co-founders. Why not start this as a solo founder? I am very extroverted. I am very much a team player. Like I actually, so when I quit Thoppa, I didn't know what I was going to do. And the first thing I did was I made a course, like an educational course about how to do, like um, how to maintain slightly larger Rails applications. And the course did pretty well financially, but I did not enjoy it at all. Working by myself was just like horrible. That that to me was like torture. Um, I just I I don't do well with them if I'm not around people a lot. What's the best part about working with other people? Is it just the day to day interactions, the conversation, the shared wins? What do you find so magnetic about it? Hmm. You know, I've never really dove into that. Some of it is that I have really high natural empathy. So this could be kind of a bummer sometimes because like if I feel like I've like hurt somebody or wronged them, it really messes me up. But the opposite of that is true too, where it's like if I can do something cool for my teammates and like make the or make the company more successful, I feel like extra good about it. Whereas like if I sign up 10 new trials this week, like I'm like cool, that's great. But like the fact that I know that like I'm helping like row this boat that the three of us are in, it feels a lot better to me. Yeah, earlier you were saying that one of the reasons why you thought it'd be fun to start a startup was that you just like being on the steep part of the learning curve. You like having rapid progress every day. You like getting that sort of positive feedback. And I think having a co-founder is kind of a hack for doing that. Like Even before you launch, even before you have any customers, before you have any sources of external feedback, your co-founder can look at what you're doing behind the scenes and be like, high five, Ben, you know, congratulations for doing that thing. Uh, whereas if you're by yourself, really can be kind of isolating. You can go for a long time without getting any feedback from anybody. Yeah, I, I found even success kind of depressing when I was by myself. Like it just didn't, it was just too hollow. It didn't work for me. All right, so you're the opposite of me. I'm an introvert. I need my alone time. I started Indie Hackers by myself, but that meant that I had to launch pretty quickly so I could get that feedback. With Indie Hackers, I went from idea to launch in about three weeks. With Tuple, you and your co-founders took eight months, I think, from idea to launch. Is that right? That's about right, yeah. We're, we're about one year old right now. Um, and yeah, that's, that's about right. I want to walk through the story of what happened in those eight months because there's a lot. You guys were coding. You were talking to users. 
you were doing pre-sales. And even before that, you had to all agree to work on Tuple over all the other ideas on your idea list. How did you decide to work on this particular idea? Hmm. So it, it had the characteristics that I wanted, where it was software, for sure, and was uh, something that would be useful to my current audience. But I would say we were kind of at... Um, and it also had kind of a compelling story, which is there was this great app for this called Screen Hero. And then uh, me and old Slack came along and bought it and ostensibly rolled it into their product, but not really, uh, and then shut it down and no one could use it. And so there was kind of this awesome narrative of like, and we, the brave little startup, are coming along to you know fight back against Slack and, and bring back this, this awesome remote pairing tool. So that was kind of nice too. But, and, but I would say we were basically at like 80%. So Joel and I had had like a meeting at a coffee shop and it was kind of like, the, are we going to do this meeting? And it was like, and it, it was, uh, we walked out of that thinking like, probably yes. It seems like yes, but we weren't, I would, we weren't quite at a hundred percent. And so I reached out to actually one of the co-founders of Screen Hero and said, Hey, I'm thinking about starting a company that would kind of be the spiritual successor to Screen Hero because I used it and loved it and I miss it. Could I buy an hour of your time at whatever you think is reasonable to, to, to pick your brain about whether, you not, whether or not this might be a good idea? And he said, yeah, absolutely. And by the way, didn't charge us anything, which is what always happens when you do that trick. Oh, man. Um, yeah, it's, that's, that's one of the best. I would have been like, yeah, $2,000. $2, I mean, I would have paid it. it would, that would have been worth it. That's because on that call, he said, yeah, you should absolutely do this. I think there's totally still a market here. Uh, I think there's like you're capable of doing it. Like, just just go for it. Is that what you expected to hear? Um, well, uh, I don't know what I expected. Like, so I, I DM'd, DM'd him this and he was like, oh, yeah, there's definitely a need here. Like, let's definitely talk. And so the initial response was very positive. And so when he just sort of followed up with that, it was, it was more positive than I was expecting. But that was when we went from like 80% to like 100%. It's like, OK, we're, we're doing it. We have to take a crack at this. All right, so you're all in at this point. You're definitely going to work on this idea. You and Joel have quit your jobs by this point. You brought on Spencer, who's got savings as well. What's the first thing you guys do to make this a real business? Uh, the first thing that we did was Spencer and Joel started working on a prototype. So our app is fairly complicated. So, so I've, of all the products I've worked on, usually the risk is not in te- technical execution. It's more like, this is a Rails app, and we're going to do form stuff and stick data in a database, and you know it's a CRUD app. This was very much not a CRUD app. This is real-time, low-latency video streaming. And that was a core part of our value proposition, which is like, we think if we do this thing right, we can make remote like control and remote screen sharing much faster and more pleasant than what we have right now on the market. So it was like, not only do we have to make it work, we have to make it better than what most people are providing. And so Spencer and Joel got to work on a prototype. And since the whole world of like real-time video streaming is complicated, they started just like with very basic stuff where like this is, it was a, it was very much like a, we're not going to launch this to anyone. We just want to figure out like the pieces and what this domain looks like. That's pretty scary because you guys are burning through your savings, building this technically difficult app, with no real short-term plan to sell to anybody. Were you concerned about that? Very much so, yeah. That, I, I thought that was probably our biggest risk factor in the beginning. So while they were doing that, I was off pre-selling this product to like make sure that the risk of like no one wants this wasn't there. And I quickly discovered that that was, that was not going to be the problem. Like I, I pre-sold about $8,000 of this app before it even existed. Uh, and so it was like, okay, clearly the dream is sellable. If if we can make a thing that that that, may, that is the dream, that part is actually very scary. You're the exact inverse of 99% of the founders that I talk to, who are pretty sure they can build what they have in mind. No clue if anyone will want it or agree to pay. 
What was the pre-sale process like for you? How did you find people? How did you approach them? And how did you convince them to agree to pay for an app that didn't exist yet? So I was helped very much by the narrative that already existed and the, the context that was already there. So a lot of people knew Screen Hero and used it. And so my, my pitch was basically like, hey, did you ever use Screen Hero? Like, oh, yeah. Like, remember when, sh- when Slack shut that down? Like, oh, yeah, that sucked. It's like, yeah, we're going to try to make that. And they would go, oh, my God, that'd be amazing. And that was basically the wholesale pitch. It's cool because we talk about idea validation. How do you prove that anybody will like your idea before you invest a bunch of time and do building it? And in a vacuum, where you're building a totally new product that people haven't seen before, it's a lot of work, right? You've got to put your ear to the ground. You've got to talk to people. You've got to try selling it. You've got to see what they're going to say. It's just a lot of proving to do. But the alternative approach is if you build something that people are already kind of using or that they've used in the past and paid for, in your case, you're building a better version, a new version of Screen Hero, which is no longer available. Uh, in my case with Andy yes. Hackers, I could see that people were already reading interviews like the ones that I put out. So I just made a slightly better version. Uh, we kind of shortcutted validation. We already knew there was demand for this in the world. And so we didn't have to go about proving it from scratch on our own. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. So I knew people loved Screen Hero. I love Screen Hero. And I knew that what was out there was not as good as it was. So it was like, okay, there's just this like very clear gap in the market that used to be addressed and that is not now. And when I look at the tools that people have in its place, they're not very good. And so it felt pretty like a, a short jump for me. You guys had Screen Hero as your product roadmap. In a sense, you could just copy what Screen Hero did. But did any of these early sales conversations you have with customers actually change your roadmap? Not really, honestly. We changed what we were doing a lot, but a lot of it was not based on customer feedback. It was more like things we were bumping into and decisions we made along the way. Thinking of ourselves as like a spiritual successor to Screen Hero helped a lot, but it also kind of hurt us in some ways where there were things that Screen Hero did that we assumed we would have to do. We would have to have an MVP that turned out to be a ton of work and also totally not true. So it it was mostly a help, but occasionally messed us up too. Okay, so you're out talking to customers. They're giving you feedback. Meanwhile, your co-founders are building a version one, I presume, of your app. You said it was never really intended to be put in front of customers. How did you guys make the switch into building something that was? So there were actually... The the version of Tuple that we launched with was, I believe, the third complete rewrite of the app. So version one was very much just like, let's understand the world of video streaming and audio and all that and remote control. Because they were just like the whole... It was just such a giant technical task that it was like, let's just like build a thing fully knowing we're going to throw it away and like just kind of get our heads around what this might look like. And so uh, version one was built in Electron, which is this like sort of wrapper for web applications that you can run on the desktop. And Electron is great for prototyping, but it is unfortunately fairly slow and uses a lot of system resources. And so we knew that like to deliver on our, at the end of the day, the value prop we wanted to deliver on was like low CPU use, low RAM use, blazingly fast. And so wrapping this thing in a fairly slow, fairly bloated wrapper was like fine for just understanding how the, this whole, all these pieces fit together, but was clearly not something we could launch with. Man, I'm getting stressed just hearing this. It's just so much code <laughs> that you're writing, like so much extra work just to build a product. And like that's not yes. supposed to be the hard part. Uh, but luckily, you could do the sales part. You could do the marketing part and find customers while your co-founders worked on this. 
I was stressed too, to be clear. Like this, this was the scary part about this business. Like normally it's like what you said, it's like, it's like the opposite. But for me, it was like, I know that when I tell people about beautiful low latency screen sharing, they're excited about it and they'll even pay us money. I do not know that we can build this. And so like even going up into our launch, like there was just like these giant doubts in my mind, like, is this fast enough? Is it good enough? Can we make it fast enough? Like we're like, if this were doable, why hasn't Slack done it already? Like why, like why isn't this better? How do, are, is it really just this tiny team of the three of us are going to improve on the state of the art versus these enormous companies? Like how could this be true? So it was, it was very, it was scary. I talked to a lot of founders who have ideas they're excited uh, about working on. And I think one of the things I find myself saying very frequently recently is that a product idea is not a business idea. You can have an idea for a product, and that's only one part of your business. You also have to think about the market, right? Who is going to use this? What do they value? You need to think about distribution. How are you actually going to get this product in the hands of your customers? Because you could build the best restaurant in the world. If it's the middle of Sahara Desert, no one's going to eat there. And then you have pricing, which sort of affects all of the above. Your pricing model controls what you can build, how you distribute it, who's going to pay for it, et cetera. We've talked a lot about the product that you guys built based on Screen Hero. We've talked a lot about the market, right? These are people who knew what Screen Hero was, who really just wanted it back. Uh, but we haven't talked very much about distribution and pricing. So let's start with pricing. How did you know what to charge for Tuple? <laughs> um, well, <laughs> I knew exactly what to charge by testing every possible pricing scheme <laughs> under the sun. I had no idea. And I, I think that's the right way to go about pricing is to just like test a ton of things. Uh, and this is definitely something I developed uh, during my time at ThoughtBot. And so... In the beginning, I was selling vaporware because we were, Joel and Spencer were like cranking away on it, but it definitely was not a product. And so I would go to people and pitch them kind of on this like wonderful vision of the future. And they'd be like, that sounds great. And I'd be like, great. So uh, we're looking for... I'm looking for some people that are kind of rare right now. So I'm looking for people that want this badly enough that they're willing to put some money down, even though you can't try it yet. Uh, and that, you, that someone that's willing to support the vision and really wants this thing to exist in the world. And so I'm going to ask you to prepay for a whole year. Uh, and it's gonna, I'm going to give you access. Once we launch, you'll have access for the whole alpha, which will be some number of months and then a year after that. And they'd be like, okay, cool. What's that cost? And then I would make up a number. And I, the first number I threw out was like $149 a year. So the first person that paid that. And then with every, just about every subsequent person, I would walk it up and say like, oh, it's, a, it's $200 per person per year, 300, 500, 900, 800, and just like throw out different numbers and just see what worked. And that was a really incredibly useful thing because if it turns out there's just a huge range of willingness to pay across different kinds of companies and different kinds of people. Once we launched, I kept I kept testing. I'm, I'm still testing pricing. Honestly, I, I think I'm the closest I've ever been to like settling on a price for at least you know the next quarter. Uh, but testing pricing and just even like little tweaks about the trial and how much the trial, how long the trial is, and whether or not it's free and things like that, I think have a huge impact on your business. And so I think it's it's a, it can be a huge mistake to not just always be moving those things around and seeing what happens. What are some of the things you learned from testing pricing? Like one of the most common mantras is to charge more. Yeah. Did you find that charging more ever hit some sort of limit? Did you find that it was always better to charge more? It's a very nuanced question, I think. So I think I would have been more and just like, clearly charge more is not always right. Otherwise your price would just effectively become infinite. Uh, so there's some number at which point you shouldn't charge more. The thing that I realized is there's that willingness to pay varies a lot. So if you want to extract the maximum possible dollars per customer, there are fewer customers that are willing to pay that. So there were people that would pay us like 
a lot per user per year in advance, but there just weren't that many of them. So I actually ended up dropping our pricing below a good bit below the maximum we ever charged because I wanted more customers. I wanted more feedback. So I was like, yeah, we could we could make a really nice business if we get 50 customers at this. But I think I'd rather actually have two or 300 just because we'll, we'll have more word of mouth and a little bit more momentum and people talking about it and uh, more feedback. And most importantly, like at this phase, I'm less concerned with optimizing like what's the revenue in May and more like do we have good systems in place to get feedback from our customers to make sure that we we are not just building the right thing today, but we keep building the right thing? That makes so much sense. And I think it's one of the things that a lot of people don't realize that pricing can affect. People think, oh, price is literally just the price that I charge. That's pretty much it. But actually, pricing is everything. Pricing is how long it takes you to get to profitability. Is it going to take you two years or are you going to charge 10 times more? It's going to take you two or three months. You know, Pricing is how many customers are in your market. Pricing is what kind of customers can even afford you. It's who you're going to be interacting with for the rest of your business's life cycle. Uh, Pricing is whether or not you can afford to hire salespeople to sell your product or whether or not you have to rely on mass marketing channels. This is something we haven't even really gotten to. We've talked a little bit about how you've reached customers, primarily through what seems like one-on-one sales calls, what other channels have you used to reach customers with Tuple? My my answer to this like makes me slightly uncomfortable <laughs> because like I know the right answer is like I'm supposed to be testing a bunch of like channels and like getting our marketing engine going and all that and like we're sort of not like just about all of our customers find us through Twitter or podcasts and that's about it. So like w- one thing we do and by the way it, this this is another tip I would have for people is ask people to do things for you especially if you've built up some goodwill in the past. So like if you sign up for our mailing list, after you sign up, you confirm your email. We say, thank you so much for signing up. We're going to get in touch with you when like Tuple is ready for you to try. Hey, by the way, we're a bootstrap team of three people. If you would share uh, a link to this page on Twitter, that would be super helpful for us. And there's a tweet button on it. And a ton of people do that. And they just they t- even just take the default tweet text. And so I know they're just like literally clicking that button and, and hitting share. And like we get like dozens of these a week and people finding us through through those. And so it's like you, if you if you've built up a little bit of goodwill or maybe if not, if you just have a story that you think people will like will resonate with people, give it a shot. Oh man, I'm gonna steal that. I gotta start asking people to do that in my like intro email to Andy Hackers or something. Oh, it's so good. It, it works crazy well. And it's just like it's just free. And like it makes it it kind of gives you that viral component. Yeah. You guys are super personal in everything you do. Like I was checking out your homepage and it's not you have no illusion of trying to pretend to be this 5000 person super professional company. It's very obvious. It's three guys. Like half of your homepage is kind of a jokey FAQ about you yeah. guys personally. Yes. Yeah, that's and that's very intentional. I think that's actually one of your advantages as a small startup. Like I I make it very clear like when when we when we email our customers, it's like our signatures have our like I'm Ben. I'm one of the co-founders. Like you're you're dealing with someone who's working on this like intimately, and there's there's just no filter between you know the people that are building it and and everyone else. And, and I, th- I think people like the journey. Like so many people that have become our customers have started off as listeners to my podcast and followed through fall for a while. I'm like, hey, like I'm I'm working remotely now. Like I I can use Tuple. Like can I get in there? And by sharing as much as I can, they feel kind of invested and they're they're more excited. Like I, I think people totally. like to buy from people. You know, they don't want to just buy from a faceless company. They have no connection to is feels better to spend your money with someone that you know. There's not enough written about how being personal and how having a story attached to what you're doing can really affect people. Like I think I was watching 
Childish Gambino is an artist. He was talking about this song, and I'd never heard of the song before. I didn't particularly care about it, but he just kept talking about the story of the song, how it was written and how it was revised, and then so-and-so covered it, and it was so great, but someone else covered it, and it was bad, and it got changed. And by the end of him telling the story of the song, I just wanted to listen to the song. Like That's all I Mm -hmm. cared about. It's like, what is this song? But if he hadn't told that story, I wouldn't have any desire to listen to it whatsoever. Totally. I, I think our brains are super wired for stories. Like one of my one of my conference speaking tips is like tell a story or two. Especially like it's a great opener. I think if you just start a conference talk and say, "So three years ago, I got this like really terrible phone call." Everyone's like, "Whoa, what?" And you have everybody's attention instantly. Like we're just we're just primed for that. I think everyone goes back to kindergarten mode where you're sitting around in a circle and like listen to the story. It's like it just it just works really well. Yeah, I like that you said you felt bad about not doing some of the, I don't know, the things you should be doing around distribution channels, testing every single market, et cetera, et cetera. I feel bad about the same thing. I don't think anyone, <laughs> I, mean, I work at Stripe, Stripe's a big company. I think internally in Stripe, we feel bad about things that we should be doing that we haven't gotten, gotten to yet. What are some of the things you look forward to doing that you're not doing quite yet? I'm intrigued by the idea of doing fun, interesting things at conferences. So I have some friends that work at Honey Badger, which would, by the, they, by the way, they'd be good guests. They're definitely like an indie bootstrapped uh, rate, uh, exception monitoring service. And one thing they did that I'm just totally going to rip off wholesale because it's an awesome idea. They will sometimes sponsor a bus to take people to like a good venue to get like food. It's so like they like when, when RailsConf, RailsConf was in some city that had an in and out, but the in and out was like three miles from the venue. And so they just rented a bus and like bought people's burgers and like were like unofficial sponsors of the conference just by having this like fun little event. And so I'm, I'm intrigued by the idea of doing some fun stuff like that. It's one of the cool things about running a company is you can do whatever you want. There's no rules. Yeah. You can take people out to eat. You can take people to your acapella concerts. You can do whatever you want. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's just, it's just sort of more along that same line of putting your personality in your business and, and making it sort of a personal story that I think is just, I think it works at a bunch of levels. So let's talk about this process of you guys transitioning from this super private beta under development company to January, you guys finally making Tuple a live product. Did you have any sort of big launch? What was your plan there? Well, actually, to be clear, we're still uh, in early access. So you can't just sign up. You still have to go through me (laughs) um, to, to get into the product. That will change someday. But we launched to our alpha customers January 7th. So that was the people who had prepaid. And there was about, uh, I think this is like something like 10 teams or something like that. Uh, and we, we launched to them. That was an amazing like combination of like scary and exciting, I would say. Like, honestly, the, like the day before, I was like, maybe we should push this back like a week or two. The product is so <laughs> shaky right now. And like, we like technically hit the deadline in that we, in that we launched on time, but it was like the, it was just classic MVP. It was like just like a lot of duct tape and like the happiest of happy paths worked. And if you veered from that at all, like you were going to have like the app was going to crash, like hard crash. It's tough because you've got to figure out in the early days, okay, what do we absolutely need to have in order to launch to people and what can we put off? Otherwise, we're going to be building for like 10 years. We're never going to release. How did you guys make those decisions? Uh, Well, we we screwed them up all over the place. So like we were convinced. So Screen Hero had this great feature, which was dual mouse cursors, like for both people on the call. And we're like, okay, dual mouse cursors is great. We got to have dual mouse cursors. And we spent hundreds of hours of development time on dual mouse cursors like the, the problem is like dual mouse cursors is always a hack there's just like no way to do like the, the operating system is like there is one mouse cursor and you will not convince me that there is two <laughs> and so it's just like you just have this hacks on hacks on hacks to make it feel like there's two cursors and it just had so many edge cases and so many bugs 
And then, and, and so we launched with it and like, there were just tons of problems with it. And like a week or two in, I was like, you know what, what if we just like, did like a, a really like a one click handoff. So like one person can control the mouse at a time and you just click once and like suddenly you have control. And Spencer was like, I could get that done in like two hours. And I was like, great, let's do that. And so we did that and we disabled the dual mouse cursors and like we get almost zero complaints about missing the dual mouse cursors. Nice. What are some of the things that changed when you guys finally launched Tuple? I mean, going from nobody paying you really to people paying you and suddenly you have to support this product. Uh, what was going through your head January 7th and a few weeks after that? Well, so I, I was really nervous about launching because when every time I used the app, I was like, man, there's so many problems. And there were lots of problems. Like There was lots of issues when we launched. But what surprised me was how forgiving our early customers were. So like on our, on our early calls, like I would demo the app and it would crash. And they would still be like, this is awesome. Like, it's a bummer that it crashed. I'm sure you'll figure that out. I love that you've done XYZ. And they were just excited and focused on the positives. And that really shocked me because I was expecting people to just like be incredibly tough or kind of like kind of ruthless. And instead, they were like very understanding. They're like, and I think part of it is just that they were developers too. And so I'd be like, oh man, you're like, yeah, this is really tough because this thing is like C++ and multi-threaded. So it's actually really hard to know if we have a lock on the right thread. And so, so and they're like, oh yeah, that sounds really hard. I totally get it. And they would just be like really great about it. And that, that has actually continued and, and like been like a really pleasant surprise. It's cool building uh, any sort of business where the people who you're selling to are doing the same thing that you're doing. Because I have the same thing with indie hackers. Like the forum is full of people who are trying to start a business, who are trying to make these difficult decisions themselves. And so everyone's really nice to me. They're really nice to each other. And it's, I've had the opposite experience in previous businesses, man, where I get angry customer emails about bugs and issues. And it's, it's such a difference in your quality of life as a founder to have nice customers who understand what you're going through. It so is, yeah. And, and I'm so glad I sell to developers like, because I just I understand them. All right, like We understand each other, I guess. And so we have this sort of instant rapport. And that, that just makes life feel better. Like I'm, I'm happy to keep serving this audience for a long time. Yeah. So do you remember what your revenue was like month one after launching? Revenue in month one? Probably almost nothing. I th- well, so I was kind of continually selling the product. Uh, so like I like got that alpha group together, but then I was still uh, trying to sell. I mean, I can just go look. Let's go. Let's answer this. Yeah, let's check it out. All right. Okay. January revenue, net revenue was $1,500. $1,500. Three co-founders. Pretty far mm-hmm. cry away from ramen profitability, but you guys are still living off your savings. Uh, yeah. What's your revenue at like now? So we're on pace to do over 20K this month. Wow. That's huge. It's been like five, five months, four months since January. Yeah, four, yeah, four months. Yeah, fifteen hundred to twenty k. What are some of the biggest things you guys have done to make such a quick leap so fast? <laughs> the, the answer is is not going to make anybody happy. I think is because it's it's basically so we we built up this email list as you do. So like the first one of the first things we got together was a landing page which says, "Hey, we're making a thing." And so that email list has uh, close to 5,000 people on it now. Uh, and so I've just been steadily driving people to that constantly. And so the, the reason for our, like basically a ton of our trials these days come from the mailing list. So I'll just pull off another 500 people and email them and say, hey, your invite's up. Here we go. Like, do you want to use it? And so we're sort of just like cashing in stuff. We're, we're spending our savings of email subscribers basically that have been built up over the last year. Oh, cool. So you're, you're emailing like small subsections. of You're not doing like one big everybody's end. Why do it that way? Correct. Yeah. 
um, I have been because, because something always goes wrong. Um, so, well, there's like a bunch of reasons. Like one is like, man, if you just like do it all at once, you can't do it again. It's like you've used it. And if you screw something up or there's a link that's wrong or the thing crashes, it's just like, wow, I've just, now I'm really hosed. And that was this, I would say part of our DNA. And for the thing we've been saying from the beginning is like, we don't have to be in a rush. Like we want to get to ramen quickly because we don't want to die. But we also don't need to be huge. There's no like VC pressure, any of that. So like, let's, let's go in a sustainable pace. And so we do that with basically everything. Like we're we're launching a major new feature this week. And so we're rolling it out to a small people behind set of people behind a feature flag. Because we just want to make sure that like we we do things in a kind of slow, sensible way. Also, if you launch the cohorts, you can change the price every time you do it. So you guys are still tweaking pricing. You're still trying to figure out what it's going to be. Not, not much anymore. It's pretty well dialed. Uh, people actually joke. People will like email me back and be like, am I in the high price cohort or the low price cohort <laughs> for this one? Because I talk about this on my podcast a lot. These days, I mostly am just offering the same price to everyone. But at the beginning, I was very much testing different, different pricing levels. And, and we still are iterating on things that are like not quite priced, but like pricing model. So in the beginning, so like we charge per seat. And in the beginning, I would be talking to someone and they'd be like, yeah, I want to sign my team up. And I'd be like, okay, great. We charge X per seat. How many people do you want to start with? And they'd go, oh, um, I'm not really sure. Let me go check. And then like that was just like a huge road bump in the sales process. And often they would just disappear and then they would just never come back. So a thing that we, we switched to that has been huge for us is we do $100 for your first month, regardless of how big your team is. And so there's no decision required. You need to put a card down. And by default, we're going to charge you per people, like for everyone like that signs up that you want to keep going with. But it makes it really easy to get into the product and actually use it. Such a consistent theme that I've found when talking to founders like yourself that Forcing people to talk to you personally, even if it's just over email or something, is such a great learning experience. Like you get this feedback that you would never get if you just had a pricing page up and people looked at it and then just left and didn't tell you why. Exactly. And you'd be like, my conversion rate to paid is 0.89%. Uh, people say it should be 1%. I wonder why that is. And, and you like, know. good luck. Good luck tracking that down. You, or you'd be like, well, is that bad? Is that good? I don't know. And like, you wouldn't feel that pain of like, oh man, I'm losing a lot of people at this stage in the funnel. I actually think that this is a very common failure mode for dev founded startups. Like, one, I say the most common failure mode is not charging enough uh, or it's like not testing pricing enough. But then also it's um, wanting to over automate. So I'm pretty adamant that we only automate things that we're already doing manually that we feel confident about and feel good as a process. And then when it becomes annoying, we automate it. Yeah. If you loop yourself out of the business, you're probably the most important part of your business, especially early on when you don't know why people want things. And so you can't really code yourself out of the process too early otherwise. 100%. Yeah. just It's like there is this beautiful idea. And like, look, I want to build the like fully automated thing too. Like I want to, I want to be able to sit on the beach and have like tuples revenue go up like that. That's where I want to get to, but I'm trying to do it very slowly and piece by piece where like, I feel like I understand how a certain thing is working and then like automating that. But like until like a month ago, until very recently, like I was like generating every invoice on Stripe and manually emailing it to somebody. And then when they paid it, I would go in the Rails console and I would like, you know, team.new and like just like, like straight up build them their thing on the back end. And we have only like recently started automating these pieces because it's like, okay, I'm doing so many of these per month that it's annoying. But there have been things where like, at first, we're like, oh, we're definitely going to need to automate this. And then three months later, we've barely done it. And so I was like, oh, actually, we don't need to automate that. And like that's, we're avoiding like a real cost there. I'm curious how you came to these learnings and these realizations. Because like you said, the intuitive thing, especially as a developer, is that you've got to automate stuff. And even when you're not automating it and it's taking up all your time every week, it just feels wrong. 
how did you come to know that actually it's the right thing to do to talk to your customers? How did you learn any of the stuff? <laughs> the way that just about everybody learns everything, which is by doing it and screwing it up lots of times and then learning from my mistakes. So Tuple is not my first business. So I uh, started uh, a business inside of ThoughtBot. I have run other SaaS apps for ThoughtBot. I have gone on retreats with friends and launched small SaaS products in like a matter of days and run those on the side as side projects. I have built info products multiple times and sold those. Like I have been trying to get people on the internet to give me money for a long time. And so I've been able to like <laughs> avoid a lot of missteps right now because I have made a lot of missteps already. Give me an example of one of these things that you started where you perhaps made a lot of missteps. One example is I was running a product at ThoughtBot called FormKeep, which was um, form endpoints as a service, which is like if you need a place to like post a form to, to like hold some some data uh, from like a mostly static website, uh, you could spin up a whole server or you could just like point at like one of our specific endpoints and then we'll capture that data for you and then forward it to Zapier and things like that. And like a classic developer created tool. We had were dramatically undercharging for it. So, like the original pricing model for Formkeep was pay what you want, uh, which is um, <laughs> zero dollars. So, like, yeah. Well, so there was like a scale. So you had to pay at least one. And so it was like there's like a slider, like from like one to like a hundred or something. And guess what price both people want to pay when given that option? A dollar. Yeah, a dollar exactly. And so we had a whole bunch of customers at a dollar. And eventually, I scrapped that. When I took over the product, I was like, no, no, we, we have to get rid of this and charge real prices. But even then, the prices I picked were like pretty low. And so one day, I noticed that Uber had signed up and was sending like tens of thousands of submissions to the endpoint that they had created. And I was like, holy crap, that's amazing. Uber's a customer. Hey, what plan are they on? And it's like $19 a month. Oh, no. And I was like, and I looked up. So I went and I looked it up and I was like, okay, Uber is losing like $2 billion a year right now. And I am $19 of that. I think our pricing might be wrong. So, so, so like, it's just like, the, like learning how to charge more is partly like a, because a, I've, I've charged the wrong amount a lot of times. And that's another situation where like, if Uber had called you on the phone or sent you an email, you'd be like, holy shit, it's Uber. Like, uh, its price is $20,000 a month, and they would not have blinked. Exactly. There's, yeah, there's a lot of value to that like, enterprise call-us plan. Let's stick to this topic of learning. One of the things that I think makes you particularly interesting as a founder is that the prototypical startup founder is this Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg-esque character who has rich parents and just aced everything in high school. They were a genius programmer. They went to Harvard, just breezed on through, and then you know started some world-changing billion-dollar company. That's very much not your story. That's not the story for the vast majority of people. Give us a little bit about your background and how you got to the point where you became a developer and became confident enough to be a founder. I I do actually share a little bit uh, of uh, past with uh, Mark and Bill in that I also do not have a college degree, um, although they left voluntarily. So um, I was actually um, kicked out of college uh, due to academic deficiency. I was someone that did okay in high school, mostly by not being super challenged and I could kind of coast a fair amount. And then I got to college and it got way harder and I had no self-discipline and no study skills. And suddenly like the, the courses were much, much more intense and I basically train wrecked. And so I kind of like failed my way through several years of school, like just barely scraping by. And eventually my GPA got low enough that the, the university was like, you have to take at least a semester off. And I was like, I should probably take more than that. 
Uh, and so I moved home and I got a job as a bartender at the Olive Garden. And that was like my first entrance to the, the, the workforce as a quote unquote adult. And that triggered uh, a good period of self-reflection, as you might imagine. Yeah. There's nothing like a healthy dose of shame uh, to uh, really force some, some looking at yourself. So, and I came to the pretty fast conclusion that like, this is not how I wanted my life to go. And so I kind of just started like working on getting my act together. And just I, I think, honestly, just facing consequences in a serious way for the first time was really the trigger. And that was like, like I, I lived actually a pretty sheltered life, had a really like nice childhood and a childhood very much sheltered from consequences and, and negative feedback, I guess. And so for the first time, like the, I couldn't run anymore. I couldn't talk my way out of it. It was just like, nope, you got kicked out of school. You have a crappy job that you're not happy with. And it's like, okay, I've, I understand at a visceral level now that my actions uh, have consequences. Yeah. Let me start making some better actions. And so I just slowly started like bending the curve in the right direction. And so like I, after like not very long as a bartender, I got a job as like a server at a fine dining restaurant, which actually is a big step up, believe it or not. And then fell back on some of my like IT, like computer skills to get like a job as an IT consultant, driving around to different companies and taking care of their servers. Uh, and then like that turned into an entry level programming gig and that turned into a better programming gig. And I kind of just kept upgrading my job every year or so uh, and like fighting my way into what I wanted, which was like a really good like programming job. A lot of founders have anxiety about not being ready to start a startup. I hear this all the time. Like, oh, I should, I want to start, but there's so much to learn. I'm not necessarily a developer yet, or maybe I am, but I don't have the business skills. What have you done besides just learning from the school of hard knocks? Do you read blog posts? Do you read books? How do you, I don't know, educate yourself as a founder? I'm in a weird spot right now where I want there to be really good resources for me that will tell me the right thing to do now that I have to make these difficult decisions. And the more I look for them and the more I actually run a company, the less confident I am that there are, there exists this resource. And it's, it's just that I actually think there's just a lot of different ways to do this. And so you can try to do it in the way that somebody else does. And for a while, it would kind of stress me out because someone would be like, oh, you need to know what your top three marketing channels are and you need to be constantly testing and iterating. And I'm like, oh God, I'm not sure. I, like, I, I'm not testing or iterating anything on, on the marketing side, like pricing, sure. But, and I just like was stressed out because like, oh, some blog post told me I, I should do a thing and I'm totally not doing it. But it's like also like things are kind of working. And so I think there's a, it's like we're solving a very complex problem here, which is like, how do you make an engine that spits out money at the other end? And there's like a ton of different ways to make these engines and they can be shaped in a whole bunch of different configurations. And so I'm, I'm, I'm getting more and more to the point where I feel like, you know what, I'm just going to kind of figure this out as I go. And there's some smart people I like talking to. And that's actually probably been the, the most helpful thing is to actually have friends that, that run businesses and to bounce ideas off them and like have like a little bit of a mastermind or go to conferences like MicroConf and talk to other people doing it for ideas, but also like rejecting those ideas when they don't feel right to me. Yeah. I found the same thing, man. There's just no one right answer out there. And the harder you look, it's just, you're building a unique business. No one's ever built the exact business that you built at the exact time with the exact customers. They're not going to know the answer because there's too many variables. Yep. 100%. One of the cool things that you've done though, that I think I also kind of did to a degree, I think anyone can do is to find an analog 
some some sort of other company who's already done something similar to what you're doing and like kind of use that as I don't know training wheels in the early days of your company. Like you guys kind of knew what to build because Screen Hero was a thing that existed. Um, mm-hmm. For me, with ND Hackers, like a lot of my early playbook was really based on this website Nomad List, and I kind of copied what they did and like aggregating data in one place and then building a mailing list and then turning that into a community, etc. Do you have any companies that you look up to now that you're at this point where you guys are pretty much ramen profitable and you've, I don't want to say caught up to where Screen Hero was, but you're certainly beyond the early days? Hmm. Uh, there are, yes, there are a few companies I really admire. One is Wistia, uh, which is like a local company. They're, out, they're just down the street from us and they're a video hosting company. And I think my, the thing I admire about them is that I feel like they've come to the same conclusion, which is like you have to do things that feel right to you and like run your business in a way that, that feels appropriate and makes you feel good and makes you have a good time doing it. And so uh, I look up to them for like having longevity and building a great product and having so much personality and everything. And yeah, that's, that's like the, the first thing that, that jumps to mind. You have a, a lot of crossroads that you're going to come to pretty soon. I mean, you guys are at the point of ramen profitability. You're, you're talking about building a business that lasts and staying happy, but there's all sorts of questions that come into that, right? Are you going to hire employees and try to grow as fast as possible? Um, what direction are you going to take the product? Like how much money do you really need? Like how many hours should you be spending mm-hmm. working? Mm-hmm. How do you grapple with some of those decisions and how do you talk through making them when you have co-founders you might disagree? Um. We're pretty good at agreeing with each other, actually. It seems like we're pretty philosophically aligned, which is nice. Like we tried to try to make sure that was true. And fortunately, like luckily so far, that has held true. I will say that it feels like our ambitions are subtle, maybe not even so subtly, like increasing as we hit different levels of success. So in the beginning, I mean, like two months ago, I was just like, we just gotta get to 15K so we don't die. Like that 15K for us is like, okay, we can we can basically pay our rent and bills and whatnot uh, for the three of us. Uh, and it was just like, that's all I want in the world. And now it's like, okay, we're, we're above that. Now what? It's like, oh, well, now what? Indeed. Uh, I, I don't know exactly. And so um, I feel my aspiration lifting a bit for sure, where it's like, okay, it looks like the basic thing is going to work. So then like, what kind of company do we want to build? We had said for a long time that we don't want to hire people. And I think we don't want to hire quickly. I think we would rather bias towards small, but... At the end of the day, if there are more people paddling the boat, the boat can go to all kinds of new places and go there faster. And that sounds kind of fun. A thing that people ask us for a lot right now is like a Windows client or a Linux client, like we're on Mac only. And, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, you could hire someone that is great in the Linux environment or like is a Windows expert. And then suddenly you have new expertise on the team and you can accomplish new things. It's like, okay, I can see why you might want to do that. Yeah. What about uh, work-life balance? Because I... I've seen you express some strong opinions about this. Uh, How many hours are you working on Tuple? How has that changed over time? I have no idea how to answer that question. So like, if I am lying in bed uh, from 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. and I'm just laying in there looking at the ceiling and thinking about work, am I working? I don't know, man. (laughs) Exactly. So it's like, I have no idea how many hours I'm working. I think about the business all the time. It's like my favorite thing to think about. I spend more time thinking about it it, than almost anything. I don't know if that, if you consider that working or not, like kind of who cares. And like, in a way, like how many hours a week do you work in the business is like almost one of like the least interesting questions. It's like, like, it's it's like, how many hours do you spend at practice? Like, who cares? Like, are you winning the games? Are the games going well? Great. Like, if you can practice 10 minutes a week and then win the games, that's awesome. And so like, I'm not super interested in, in optimizing that except for maybe 
just like making sure it's the number I want it to be or like it feels right. Like I like... I worked like I put in some time on Sunday night because I wanted to ship this one feature that I've been like hoping to do. And is it the most important feature for the business? No, but like I felt like writing a little bit of code and it made me happy to like get it out the door. And so I spent some hours on that and like counting that time towards work time. Sure. Yes, I was working. My my fingers were on the keyboard, but it was like, I was just kind of like scratching my own itch at that point. So I I don't really know how to answer it, but I also am just like, to me, it's it's the wrong question. The, The right question is like, are you working a sustainable amount? Like, can you keep doing this for a long time? Like, can, can you marathon this pace? I think that's really, really important. And then like, do you feel like generally fulfilled like while you're doing it or does it feel like a slog? Well, listen, man, it's, it sounds like you're on the right path. It sounds like it's not a slog. <laughs> it feels great for you. You guys are killing it on the revenue growth side of things and all of your problems seem to be the kind of problems that you want to have, right? Deciding what kind of business you want to build. Well, I appreciate that. I feel extremely lucky. Like I'm having so much fun and it's working. It's amazing. Like I, I'm sure I would, I would be giving a very different interview if like we were still at 1500 a month and I would be feeling a ton of stress and kind of miserable and like building businesses sucks. But since like <laughs> so far, everything seems to be working. Uh, I feel, I feel great. I'm having like a, a super fun time. Well, I've had a lot of fun talking to you, Ben. Can you tell listeners a little bit more about where they can go to find you online and the things you're working on and learn more about Tuple? Totally. Yeah. So probably the best thing, given that you're a podcast listener, if you're in, if you have your if you have room on your plate for another podcast, um, mine is called The Art of Product. And it's if you like hearing people talk about building businesses, I have a co-host and we're both working on startups. And so uh, our podcast is almost like a mastermind where it's the two of us chatting with each other and thinking through problems and, and, tr- and like sharing numbers and just trying to trying to get better. So if that sort of thing sounds interesting, maybe check that out. Uh, I'm R00K on Twitter if you want some hot takes. Uh, and if you want to learn a little bit more about Tuple, I'm going to put together a special page for indie hackers listeners which will be at tuple.app slash ih cool thanks so much for coming on the show man it was so fun thanks for having me if you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast why don't you head over to itunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.